All right, thank you, Tyler and crew. Take your Bible, if you will, and turn to Acts chapter 16, actually Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, if you have been with us on Sunday morning, you know that we're going through the book of Acts. And if you know anything about the New Testament, you know that the book of Acts is just what it says it is. It is a record of the Acts of the Apostles, what the Apostles did. And you remember the first part of Acts up to through about chapter 12 focuses on the ministry of the Apostle Peter. And then around Acts chapter 13, the rest of the book of Acts is primarily focused on the ministry and the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul. And if you'll remember, uh, we find that Paul and Silas, remember Barnabas, went with Paul on his first missionary journey. But sometimes good friends and good people disagree. And Barnabas and Paul had a disagreement about a young man named John Mark. And Barnabas wanted to take John Mark on the second missionary journey. John Mark, for some reason, had got homesick, or we don't really know exactly why, but he went back home on the first missionary journey. He left them in the middle of the journey... Paul said, nope, not going to take that chance again. He had one chance. He left us, went back home. I'm not, he can't go. Well, the Bible says they became such a sharp disagreement between the two men that they had to part ways. And so Paul, as a replacement for Barnabas, took a young man named Silas. So the rest of of the book of Acts is all about the ministries, ministry of Paul and Silas. Now, if you'll remember... They are now on their second missionary journey. Paul and Silas have gone out, and they get thrown in the Philippian jail. And when we were together last Sunday, we talked all about the ministry that Paul had and how the Philippian jailer gave that famous question, what must I do to be saved? And you remember the answer that Paul gave him in Acts chapter 16, down in verse number 31. He said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. And that's where we left off last week. The Philippian jailer was saved. And we want to pick up there and notice how the evidence of salvation was clear in the Philippian jailer's life. Now, coming to Christ, you know, we sang a song a moment ago, I got saved. And you have to be in the evangelical world to understand that phrase. What does it mean to get saved? That's an old phrase that goes back, I got saved, I've been saved. Well, when you come to Christ, to be saved means that you have put your faith and trust. What did Paul say when asked that question? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. To be saved in the simplest terms simply means that you are putting your faith and your trust in Jesus You believe that He's the Son of God, that He died on the cross for your sin, that He rose again on the third day, and that He's coming back again. In essence, you are no longer depending upon your efforts to be righteous. You are trusting in Jesus to be righteous. I was thinking as we were singing that song a moment ago, Oh, the blood of Jesus. Oh, the blood of Jesus. And someone might ask, that sounds kind of, you know, that's not familiar with Christianity. You're, You're... Talking about somebody's blood, that's, as a matter of fact, in the early years of the church, that was one of the, uh, one of the disparaging remarks that people made about Christians. They talk about drinking somebody's blood and eating somebody's flesh. They meet together. They, I mean, these people are they're cannibals. They're crazy. Something's wrong with them. Well, why don't we get excited about the blood of Jesus? Because 
And very quickly, it, let's just so I'm going to say this and move on. But why do we get excited about the blood of Jesus? Because when we recognize that we are sinners, have you ever done something wrong and you felt so bad about it? Maybe you hurt someone, you did something, and you just you knew that there was a payment to pay. You wanted to make up for it. Sometimes couples, you know, the husband, maybe he's been a little rude or he's forgotten, you know, something. He, he, he's, he's wronged his wife in some way. You know, what, what's the old thing? He comes in with a, you know, the old joke is the husband comes home with a bouquet of flowers and the wife says, what'd you do? What'd you do? You know, you're, you're, you recognize there's something within us that when we make a mistake, when we do something wrong, we recognize that there is a price to pay. And one of the reasons that we as Christians love the blood of Jesus, we come to God guilty. We recognize that there are things wrong with our life, that we have done things that are wrong, and we are guilty. And we come to Jesus, and the blood of Jesus is the payment for that sin. That's why so many of our Christian hymns talk about the, you know, the, that our sins are forgiven. They're nailed to the cross, and the guilt of that sin, we bear it no more. So yes, we rejoice in the blood of Jesus because it is the blood of Jesus that is the payment for our sin. And we can be free from our guilt and from the burden. So, this Philippian jailer is saved. What happens? His life changes. He is a jailer. What does he do? The Bible says in verse 32, Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. Remember, they had been beaten. He washed their stripes, and immediately he and all his family were baptized. Now when he had brought them into his home, he set food before them, and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. So, the point there is the evidence of salvation in our life is a changed life. This Philippian jailer was a changed man. He took these prisoners, he, he doctored them, he washed their stripes, he took them to his home. He fed them a meal. His life and his whole family's life was changed. Well, let's move on. Notice there in verse 35, it says, When it was day, the magistrates sent the officers saying, Let those men go. So the keeper of the prison reported these words to Paul saying, The magistrates have said to let you go. Now therefore depart and go in peace. Well, it seems like the story's ended well, hadn't it? There was an earthquake. They'd been singing the night before. The Philippian jailer's been saved. And lo and behold... Paul gets a message that morning. Hey, you can leave now. Go in peace. You're free to go. Well, maybe most of us would say hallelujah. The quicker I put this place in my rearview mirror, the happier I'll be. I'm getting out of here. Well, you know, there's something about Paul. And you read the book of Acts, you'll notice that Paul wasn't willing to let good enough alone. Remember Paul, as we're going to find out here in a moment, Paul was a Roman citizen. And if you look back at historical records, we understand that if you were a citizen of Rome, one of the rights of being a citizen is you could not be beaten or flogged without a trial. If you were accused of something, now if you were not a Roman citizen, they could just decide, hey, listen, I think he needs a good whipping. He needs an attitude adjustment. We'll give him an attitude adjustment, and that'll straighten him out. You didn't have to have a trial. They just took you in and beat the stew out of you, turned you loose, and say, now behave yourself. But if you were a Roman citizen, they couldn't touch you unless they had first proven that you had done something wrong. You, had, you could give a defense of yourself. Well, the Bible says in verse 34, verse 37, But Paul said to them, 
They have beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans, and have thrown us into prison. And now do they put us out secretly? No, indeed. Let them come themselves and get us out. And the officers told these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. And they came and pleaded with them and brought them out and asked them to depart from the city. So they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. Well, just a little notation. You know, maybe nothing theological in there, but it's interesting to me that we're going to find that Paul certainly did not think it unspiritual to use the practical and whatever means there were available to him, his right as a Roman citizen, we'll find in many places, especially Acts 22, he uses that as part of his defense. So Paul just, he had a sense of justice. He said they beat us, they didn't give us a chance to defend ourselves, and, and uh, no, we're not leaving secretly. Let them come, and let them let us go. Since they did all that, and boy, they had a diff- they were singing a different tune when they found out that Paul was a Roman citizen. Basically, they came back with their hat in their hand. They pleaded, said, please, 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 you know, we're sorry, please leave. And so Paul did. And then he goes to Thessalonica. And there in chapter 17, when they get to Thessalonica, they begin to preach the gospel uh, there uh, to the Jews. Remember, Paul was a Jew, and when he went into a city, his... The way he operated, he would normally go to the synagogue where the other Jews were and he would preach about Jesus, that Jesus was the promised Messiah and all the Jews would understand what it meant, the Messiah meant. He would go and he would preach to the Jews. Well, he did that in Thessalonica and it says there that some of them were persuaded, there in verse number 4, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. But the Jews who were not persuaded becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace. Remember the rent mob we talked about last week? Well, there's another one in Thessalonica. They had a rent mob in Philippi. So now there's a rent mob in Thessalonica, and those Jewish leaders who were not persuaded, they were jealous of Paul and Silas, so they went to the marketplace and they just got a rent mob, and they gathered a mob and set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. But when now Jason was one of the believers, it says, But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, Those who have turned the world upside down have come here too. And Jason has harbored them. And those are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things, and when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Now, I love that phrase, and you've probably heard it before if you've been to Sunday school or you've studied the Bible. They that have turned the world upside down have come here as well. That was the accusation they made against the believers. Now, I I would present to you that that is an accusation that we as Christians should gladly receive. I hope and I pray that should be who we are. We should be those who turn the world upside down. Remember the Philippian jailer? When he came to Christ, his life was never the same. And when we come to Jesus Christ, if we are following him as we should, our world should not be the same. We should change our way of living and the way around us should be changed. And so that's exactly what Paul and Silas had done. Well, what they did with Jason, Paul and Silas had been, 
They had sent them away, or Paul had been sent away. They couldn't find him. And they brought Jason in, and they basically made him post bail. What we would recognize as bail. They took security from him. They made him pay some money. And it wasn't bail like show back up for court, but it was money to say, listen, you're responsible for this Paul and Silas crowd, and if they ever cause any more trouble, you're going to forfeit what you've paid. This is security that we're holding that if we see these guys again, you're going to pay for it. Well, they snuck them out basically in verse 10. It says, The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and they arrived again. They went into the synagogue of the Jews. And it says, These were more fair-minded than those at Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the Scriptures daily to find out whether the things were so. And again, we find there, as a matter of fact, often you maybe have heard of a church named Berea. I've seen the Berean Baptist Church. Great name. Great name for a church because the people in Berea, he's talking about the Jewish people in Berea. When Paul came and he said that Jesus is the Messiah, rather than react emotionally and and just throw throw them out, they search the Scriptures. And you know, that is something we should do. You shouldn't believe what I say. Or anybody else says, just because I'm standing behind a piece of wood about yea high, we call a pulpit, that doesn't give me any authority to, that means that what I say is true. What we look for authority is the Word of God, the Scripture. And so that is, should be your place of authority. You should search the Scripture to see if what is being said is true. And that's what they did at Berea. But the folks from Thessalonica, the Bible says that they heard what Paul was doing there and they sent the rent mob there. They came and again... They ran him out of town. And basically, Paul, they sent him away to Athens by himself. And Silas and Timothy, when it's safe, they're going to come later. And we get here to where we want to end up today. And that is where Paul is preaching in the city of Athens. Can you imagine? that? Now, people go to Athens today. Anybody ever been to Athens? Anybody there? I see a couple. All right. I could have y'all give a testimonial. Well, people go to Athens, Greece, and those wonderful, uh, great... They're basically ruins now. They're, they're still magnificent, I'm sure. You could talk about how magnificent that they are, but yet they're basically ruins. Can you imagine what they looked like 2,000 years ago? In Roman times, you had Paul there. And Paul is in Athens, and you've got all these statues of the Roman god, of the Greek gods, I should say, excuse me, all these statues of the Greek gods, and Paul is there. He's kind of incognito. He's there. It says, and he's just wandering around. What do you do sometimes if you've got some dead time? He's, he's waiting on Paul and Silas. He doesn't have anything to do. Sometimes you'll walk around and just check the city out, check the situation out. That's what Paul did. Verse 16 says, Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him. This is verse 16 of chapter 17. Chapter 17, verse 16 of Acts. Paul waited for them. His spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Now imagine Paul is walking around. He's certainly been raised a Jew devout Jew and he you know knows there's only one God now he's a Christian and he recognizes that Jesus came to earth as the incarnation of God and died for our sins but he sees all of these idols and 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 his spirit is troubled have you ever been around something or somewhere and and your spirit was just troubled by the situation and that's Paul his spirit was stirred and was troubled within him the Bible says provoked 
And verse 17, Therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happen to be there. So there's two places he's reasoning with people. He goes to the synagogue. Well, who's he going to find in the synagogue? He's going to find Jewish people and also those who have converted to Judaism, those Gentiles that had converted to Judaism. So he talks to them in the synagogue. But he goes somewhere else. He goes into the marketplace at Athens. Now, who's he going to find there? He's just going to find the Greek people of that day. What was Greece or Athens especially known for even today? Philosophy. Matter of fact, we see there in verse 18, there are two, two, uh, thought, two trains of thought in philosophy that are mentioned that are still, you can still study about these if you've been to college and maybe even in high school, you've studied about these two trains of philosophy. That is Epicureanism and Stoic, Stoic, Stoicism. Uh, it says, Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, What does this babbler want to say? Others said, He seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. Now, babbler is, is the way the New King James, I think that's the Old King James as well, Actually, what that word that it translates from is, is, is a word that means seed picker. What it really means, the Greeks used it to refer to a person who was not very intelligent. They weren't very smart. They had no ideas of their own. They would go around and listen to very intelligent people spout off philosophies and ideas. And like a little bird picking up seeds... They would pick up those ideas. Then they'd run over to another group of people and they'd start talking about all those ideas they'd heard these other people talk about that they didn't know anything about. And they would say that these were my ideas. And they called them seed pickers. And that's what they called Paul. That the King James translates a babbler, but the real word is, is, is a Greek word that means seed picker. A guy that's just kind of listens to other folks. He picks up a few ideas here and he runs over here and he just he spouts out all them ideas that he picked up over here. It, it's nothing he really believes or necessarily knows himself. He just picked it up from somewhere else. And that's what they call Paul. And in a place like Athens where knowledge, knowledge is above all. Remember what Paul says in another place where he talks about the cross, the preaching of the cross, that, that we preach the cross. What did he say Greeks seek after? He said Greeks seek after wisdom. Wisdom. If you were, you lived in Athens, you wanted to know. You wanted to know more and know more. The Greeks have always been known for that. So here's Paul. We could title this part of the message, Jesus meets Apollo. Jesus meets Apollo. I mean, really, here's where Christianity comes into contact with Greek philosophy and how did Paul preach to these philosophers? Now, let's talk about the two groups he met. The Epicureans, basically, what they believed and what they tried to base their life upon was that you should try to get through life as much as possible with as little pain as possible. As far as God, they didn't believe in a God. They didn't deny that a God might exist. They just said, you know, if He does exist, He's certainly not interested in us. He's of no consequence to us. Maybe there is an intelligent being that created the world. But, but He doesn't care what you do. He doesn't care what I do. He's not interested in us. You're never going to see Him again. And so what you need to do 
The best way to try to live your life is to, is to so order your life so that you encounter at, at the least amount of pain possible. As, as pleasurable as you can make your life, as easy as you can make your life, that's how you should, that's how you should order your life. And then the Stoic, most of you probably have heard of, uh, we even use that word, he's very Stoic. To be Stoic means that your goal is to be so disciplined and so master your emotions and your mind and your life that whether it's pleasure or whether it's pain, it has no effect upon you. I mean, if you get slapped beside the head, if, you know, if you encounter the most pleasurable event in your life, it has no effect. I'm above pleasure and pain. I'm not going to be defined by pleasure or by pain. I'm going to be above pleasure and pain. Our expression, grin and bear it. That's kind of an idea of stoicism. That, that, that I'm just going to take it and I'm going to do the very best I can. And it doesn't matter if it's pleasure or if it's pain. I am not going to be moved by it. Now, they believed in God, but basically their belief in God was that God was a force... Seen Star Wars? Anybody ever seen the Star Wars? You know, the force. The force is with you. You know, God was a force. He wasn't a personal being. He wasn't a personal God. He wasn't a personality. He's just this great force that's out there. And again, really doesn't have any impact upon us. So these Epicureans and these Stoics, they get Paul and they say, Hey, you sound like a seed picker. You're just spouting off stuff. You probably heard this from somebody else. Look, 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 I want to hear what you have to say. And verse number... 19, it says, they took him and brought him to the Arab, 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 Arabagus. I'm sorry. I've got a picture of it. A picture is better than a thousand words, especially if they're not pronounced correctly. I think I've got a picture of that. Do you have a picture of that? This is, this is, this is the Arab, Arabagus there in Athens. It says, may we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and all the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, and I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. And we'll stop there and come back. But I wanted you to show you this is the Romans called it Mars Hill. If you've got an old King James Version, it says Mars Hill. But this is, this is a hill in Athens, and it was where the Greeks had a council. They believed in, in Greek mythology that one of the Greek gods was tried for a crime on this hill. And so that's why that they had a, had a court there, and you would get on that hill, they'd bring people. Now, Paul wasn't standing in judgment. It was more of a council where they would, brought, they would bring people to hear something new. And so if you go to a ne the next slide, if you stand on that hill there, up above that hill is, is the Acropolis. And that's if Paul stood there on that hill, he would have looked in one direction and saw the Acropolis right there above him. And then he looked in the other direction, and you go to the next slide, and that's the city of Athens down below. So that was the view, obviously. It would have been different buildings 2,000 years ago. But he was on a hill. They brought him to that hill and they said, now, now tell us exactly what it is that you're talking about. And then Paul begins his famous sermon, most probably in the, using the old King James terminology, his sermon on Mars Hill or his sermon there on the Arapacus. Er, er, 
on that hill, that council. So he gets ready and he says, Men of Athens, and again, if you've got the old King James, it says, I perceive that you are very superstitious. In the way we talk today, that would be an insult. If you say, well, you know, he's real superstitious. But that's not really a compliment, right? The way we, we, we talk. That's not what Paul was saying. Paul was not trying to insult them and saying, I tell you, you folks are too superstitious. What Paul was doing, Paul was giving them a compliment and if you have a newer translation, it will say something like the New King James does. He says, I perceive that you are very religious. What Paul was really saying is, you know, I, I noticed that you guys are very religious people. You're very devout. You know, you have a desire to know about God. He was giving them a compliment, not reprimanding them for superstition. He was saying that you are a religious people. He says, I perceive that you are a religious people. You are very religious. He says... Therefore, he said, I noticed when I was walking through, and he, remember there were all those Greek gods aligning the pathway that he walked, but there was one he saw that said to the unknown God. And, and, and what a wonderful example this is of, of being an apologist for Christianity. Paul didn't go there and, and begin to judge these people and come down on them. They knew nothing about Scripture. They knew nothing about the Jewish God. Maybe they'd heard some Jews talk about it. Certainly knew nothing about Jesus. And Paul starts with them where they are. He says, I notice that, that you are very religious. You, have, you believe in God and you, you believe in many gods. And you've got a, an inscription there that says to the unknown God. Remember they were accusing Paul of spreading something new. They said he, he's got some new, some foreign religion. Some foreign religion. Paul comes to him and said, no, 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 no. He said, I notice you're worshiping someone you call the unknown God already. He says, therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. I mean, if, you were, if, if you're talking about a courtroom, Paul, he's just scored a great point. Their accusation is you're bringing foreign gods in here. You're bringing something new in here. Paul says, oh, no, no, no. You're already worshiping the God that I'm talking about. You just don't know His name. You have, you have an idol to Him, to the unknown God. I've told the story before, a story that Adrian Rogers used to tell about his conversation with an atheist who came to visit him one time. He was doing some marriage counseling. That's how the man came. And uh, this man was an atheist. The husband was, and he began to have a conversation with him. And uh, he said, oh yeah, I'm an atheist. He said, well, really? He said, well, so that means... You don't believe in God. You don't believe there's oh no, there's no God. He said, Well, do you know everything there is to know? He said, Well, of course not. I, you know, you'd be a fool to say you knew everything there is to know. He said, Well, uh, do you know half of everything there is to know? He said, I, I'd be very generous to say I knew half of everything there is to know. He said, Well, let's just assume you know half of everything there is to know. Do you think it's possible that God may exist in that half of what you don't know? He said, well, well, I guess it's possible. I guess. And that's exactly what Paul was telling him. He was telling him, listen, there's something you don't know. There's an unknown God you haven't heard about. It's good that you're trying to find God. You recognize there's something bigger than you. You're trying to worship whatever that thing is. And you've got idols made to all the ones that you've heard of before that you're trying to figure out why the world works like it does. But yet you recognize there's probably something you don't know. And you even got built an idol to that God, that being that you don't know. And you're trying to worship Him. I've come to tell you who that is. I'm not bringing a foreign God. This is not something new. 
You're already trying to do it. I've just come to tell you who He is. So Paul then begins to preach. He says, Him I proclaim to you. Then he begins to talk about what a wonderful expose on the nature of God. He says, God who made the world and everything in it. God is the creator of all things. And since He is Lord of heaven and earth, not only is He the creator, Paul says, but He's the ruler of all things. He does not dwell in temples made with hands. He's above all things. You can't lock Him up in a, in a building. You can't build a house for Him. It's too big for that. He doesn't dwell in temples made with hands, nor is He worshipped with men's hands as though He needed anything since He gives to all life, breath, and all things. Now what, what Paul is making the point here is that you can add nothing to God by anything you give Him or anything you offer to Him. He needs nothing. He says you can bring Him all the gold, you can lift your hands to Him. That doesn't make God any greater than He already is. Neither is He worshipped, He says, with men's hands since he, as though He needed anything since He gives to all life, breath, and all things. Do you know worship is not for God? Who is worship for? It's for you. Doesn't make God any holier. Doesn't make God any better. Doesn't make God feel good. God is already complete. What you do when you worship is you bring yourself closer to your Creator, to the One who gave you your life and your being and all that you have. It helps you. You can't add to God. When you tithe and you give money to the work of God, it doesn't help God. God doesn't need your money. It helps you realize that all you have, you are a steward of. You don't own it. One day you're going to breathe your last and your heart's going to stop working. And all that money or whatever you've accumulated, it's going to somebody else. Well, of course, the lawyers will get a good chunk first. And the attorney. But that's after the doctors and the medicine. They've got their chunk to try to keep you here a little while longer. And then after that, they're all going to get a piece, and whatever's left, then that is going to be... You're just a steward. And what tithing does, tithing makes you realize that. But let's move on to a sermon. He says, and He is made from one blood. Now, the original Greek doesn't have the word blood in there, but it, it, it makes the point. What He really says, He has made from one. He is made from one every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. In other words, he says, that person you don't like, you're kin to him. You know, I love to do ancestry. It's always fun. I found I've got ancestors on both my mother and my father's side. You know, I think about that old song, I'm my own great-grandpa. You know, I, I'm not that, but... but you know, you find out you've got I mean, it's cousins, married cousins somewhere in there. But you know, you begin to find out the further and the deeper you go into that, you're kin to just about everybody. Well, I got news for you. You are kin to everybody. Paul says that God made every human being from one. We're all descended from the original man. Adam, whatever race, whatever nationality, He has made all of us one, Paul told the Greeks. And he said, verse 27, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they may grope for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us. 
For in Him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also His offspring. Paul says, listen, God created us, and we have a knowledge that there is a God, and, and, and man has been searching and groping and trying to feel and find God somewhere. But yet, Paul says, He's not very far from us. You don't have to go in search of Him. He doesn't dwell in a certain city. You don't have to go on a pilgrimage somewhere. For in Him we live and move and have our being. God is here. He's within you. He made you. Remember in Romans, He said, you know, the word of faith that we preach, it doesn't say, you know, where shall I go? It says, for the word is nigh you even in your mouth. That if you confess the Lord Jesus with your mouth, you will be saved. And so that is exactly what Paul is saying. He's saying God is there. He even quotes from one of their, we would call them pagan poets. One of their pagan poets, he was talking about the Greek gods, that we are the children of the gods. But Paul was familiar with that literature. And he used their quote. He says, for we are his offspring. He says, yes, that's right. He says, verse 29, Therefore, since we are the offspring of the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone. Think about everything Paul was seeing around him. All those marble statues and the gold and the silver made to these gods. He says, listen, God is not, he is not the object of man's idea. He says, nothing that can be shaped by art or man's devising. Surely, or truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because He has appointed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom He has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising Him from the dead. Paul has gone through a description of God, the nature of God, and how He is very close to you. You don't have to go in search of Him. He's right there. He's right here. He's within you. He, you, you. In Him you live and move and have your being. And He says, one day, I know you've been walking in ignorance, and God's given you space for that, but now, now you've got the knowledge. And you need to take advantage of that knowledge because one day there's going to be a judgment. Paul reminds them of the final judgment. There's going to be a judgment. And Jesus is going to be the judge. And Paul says He has given us assurance of that by raising Jesus from the dead. Now remember, that's what got them started interested in Paul at the beginning because he was preaching about the resurrection. And boy, when they heard that, verse 32, and when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, remember, he's on the Arapacus there on that hill, there in Athens, he's given a defense of his belief. And when they heard that, the Bible says some mocked, while others said, we will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them, Dionysus, the Arapagite, a woman named Demarius, and others with them. Now when Paul finished his crusade, if you will, in Athens... It wasn't a Billy Graham crusade where thousands came. When he spoke about the resurrection, somebody busted out laughing. See, you've got to be joking. You're saying that, some, that, that people are going to rise, that someone has already risen from the dead. This man, Jesus, you're talking about, he died and, and rose again. That was more than they could stomach. They said, you, you're, you're crazy. They mocked. They began to laugh and make fun. They said, you, 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 you've lost it. 
People, people, you're dead, that's it. You don't come back. Nobody's ever come back. Some were scratching their head that said, you know, we'd like to hear a little bit more about this. This is interesting. This is interesting. We'd like to hear some more about what you're talking about. But there was a third group, that last verse, who believed. You know, that's true any time the gospel is presented. No one may bust out laughing outwardly. Some, some may. But some people inwardly say, that's a bunch of bunk. No, I don't believe that for a minute. All that's just, just superstition. I don't believe a word of it. Others say, you know, that's kind of interesting. I'd like to know a little more. I think I'm going to go home and pull that up on the internet. I, I think I'm going to do a search. I'd like to know a little bit more about that. But others, others are stirred by the Spirit of God and they respond and they do exactly what the Bible says to follow Christ. They believe. They believe. I'm going to ask our musicians to come and give us a hymn of invitation this morning. If you're here today, 2,000 years ago, Paul preached a wonderful message in Athens on Mars Hill, as the Romans called it, there in the midst of that city of philosophy, that city of knowledge, that great city of art and culture. That same message is true today to us. That God created all of us. We are His children. He created us. And He offers to us salvation and forgiveness through His Son, Jesus Christ. The same message that Paul preached, who rose from the dead and is seated at the right hand of the Father, to whom one day... We will give an account. If you're here today, you want to come and pray, you want to come make a decision for the Lord, you just obey as we stand and sing hymn number.